Well, I think you can see why it's not been hard to recruit people to work too. It's just a really fun week and uh, it's going to feel a little quiet around here this next week now uh, when everything kind of settles down. All right. Would you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 14? We're going to be looking at uh, three chapters this morning as we go through this text. Again, this is the second message in a mini-series on revival that I'm doing this summer. And uh, I'll read this text as we come to it uh, this morning in the message. So turn there, keep your Bibles open, 2 Chronicles 14, and let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is holy, it is true, it is powerful, it's life-changing. It presents people and circumstances just as they are, both the good and the bad, so that we might learn from their example. And I pray that you would help us to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're talking about revival this summer, and I want to share a couple things just from last week by way of reminder. If you weren't here, it'll bring you up to speed. But what we saw last week was that revival is a sovereign act of God where he restores his own backsliding people to repentance, faith, and obedience. Revival is a work that God does in his church to bring new life back into the church or where we have drifted and gone astray, he calls us back in repentance to turn to him. And what we saw in the passage we looked at last week is that there are four conditions for revival that are given in 2 Chronicles 7.14. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And so those four words that stand out are the words humble and pray and seek and turn. And when we as God's people do that, Old Testament, New Testament believers, when we come before God in that way and turn to him and pray, God moves. And he says, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive your sin and I will heal your land. One of the other things we notice whenever we do a study of kings and chronicles in that period in Israel's history is that as the leader goes, so goes the nation. The leaders, these kings who were to be representatives of really what the Messiah was to be like, God's king in the future, that when these kings honored God and walked with them, the nation was blessed. When they turned away from God and they sinned and they led the nation that way, it was terrible what happened. And what we see, sadly, is that after the deaths of David and Solomon, the kingdom of Israel went downhill quickly. Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes king, and he unwisely rejects the counsel of Solomon's advisors, and he begins to treat the people harshly, and they rebelled against him. And that's when the kingdom is divided, and the ten northern tribes of Israel go off on their own following Jeroboam, no relation to Rehoboam, but they become a separate kingdom. And only Judah and Benjamin remain with Rehoboam in the south. And Rehoboam's failure as a king was summed up in this verse, that he did evil because he did not set his heart on seeking the Lord. There's that word, seeking, and he did not do that. After him would come another king named Abijah, who was uh, a king just for three years in 
Judah. Uh, he had a victory in battle over Jeroboam, but again it was said about him that his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. And David becomes the measure for all kings ever after, you know, in terms of uh, how did they relate to God? What did they think about him? As David was that one who was an example of the Messiah who was going to come. And so we see this history of Judah where there is this turning away from the Lord and then after Abijah comes this king, Asa. And Asa reigned in Judah for 41 years, those years 9, 11, 8, 70 B.C. And Asa's life is summed up in that he was a good king. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. And that's found in 1 Kings 15. But Asa's life is really a tale of two stories. In his early years, he followed the Lord with all his heart. But in his later years... He did not. And it's really sad to read this story of what happens in his life. He began so well, but he finished poorly. In the first part of his life, he walked with God and experienced great victory. But at the end of his life, he did not. And Esau's life is an example of what can happen when we seek the Lord and when we do not. And the key word that's emphasized by the chronicler in this revival is the word seek. Remember I told you last week that 2 Chronicles 7.14 is really kind of an outline for the book of 2 Chronicles and that in each of these four revivals that we're going to look at, one of those words is emphasized, either the humility or the seeking, the turning or the prayer, praying. And today it is the word seek. So what happens when we seek the Lord? What does God do when his people turn to him earnestly and seek him? Well, there are three things I'll point out from this text. Number one, we experience his peace in our life. We experience his peace. Let me read for us chapter 14, verses 2 to 7. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places. He smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to obey his laws and commands. He removed the high places and incense altars in every town in Judah, and the kingdom was at peace under him. He built up the fortified cities of Judah since the land was at peace. No one was at war with him during those years, for the Lord gave him rest. Let us build up these towns, he said to Judah, and put walls around them with towers, gates, and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. In the 15th year of Asa's reign, Judah experienced a great revival. And what's interesting about this is that it did not follow a period of decline. In fact, what we read is that it was just the opposite. For 10 years, the nation had been at peace, and Asa instituted these reforms. Asa led a series of religious reforms. He tore down the idols that were there. He smashed the Asherah poles in Judah. They were a pagan kind of fertility uh, pole that was set up as a way that these, uh, they would be worshipped like an idol along with the others that were there. 
He removed the male shrine prostitutes, and he commanded Judah to obey the law of God and to worship him only. Asa also built up the fortified cities on the perimeter of Judah. And so here you have this good king who is instituting religious reforms, and he is a builder. He is looking out for his people as a good king should. And the key to his success is found in a word that's used nine times in these three chapters, and it is the word seek, or it will say he sought the Lord. Nine times. So we don't miss it. The writer of Scripture here is emphasizing that this was a king who sought the Lord. In verse 4, he commanded Judah to seek the Lord with all their heart. And in verse 7, we read that because they sought the Lord, they experienced God's peace, his blessing, his prosperity on their life and on their kingdom. So what does it mean to seek the Lord? What does that look like for us? When we seek the Lord, it means we turn to him with all our heart. It's really the great commandment being lived out that we are to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We come to him and we, we make him our Lord. We turn from our sin. Asa demonstrated his sincerity by tearing down the idols in the nation, by removing the temple prostitutes, by getting rid of all these things that were part of that pagan worship. It means we seek his will and we commit ourselves to following it. We come with a heart that says, Lord, teach me your way and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may follow you. And when we come with that kind of attitude, God shows us his will for our life. And then means we turn to him in fervent prayer. God's people set themselves to pray. And we come before God and we seek him. You know, there are several examples in history of when God's people have done that. The one I want to share today to tie this together with the revival in Second Chronicles is the first great awakening in America. The first great awakening in America is often dated from 1740 to 1743, but it actually begins several years earlier in 1734 in a place called Northampton, Massachusetts. And what occurred there in Northampton was that God was kind of stirring up his church. Revival is a work that God does in the church to bring new life. And then when we use the term awakening or spiritual awakening, that's what God does among the general population. That's when people are converted to Christ and when what's happening in the church spills over into our land and it's a movement of God that brings many into the kingdom. Well, the revivals began to occur across New England in different pockets at that time. And in Northampton, Massachusetts, Jonathan Edwards was the pastor of a congregational church there. And prior to the revival, the town experienced a degenerate time with a dullness of religion. According to Edwards, the young people were addicted to night walking, tavern drinking, lewd practices, and frolics among the sexes the greater part of the night. Family government failed in the town. After a long period, the town was sharply divided between two parties who were jealous of each other in all public affairs. His language may be different, but he's describing things that we see in our world too. 
In a nearby village, two young people died in the spring of 1734, and people began to think soberly about spiritual and eternal matters. In answer to the prayers of his people, God began to move. That fall, Edwards preached on justification by faith alone, that it's only by the work of Christ that we can be forgiven and come into a relationship with God. And in December, five or six persons were converted, and one of them was a young woman who was known to be one of the greatest company keepers in the whole town. That's a nice way of saying that she was rather promiscuous. And her life was so radically changed that everyone could tell it was a work of God's grace. And during the following six months, 300 people were converted in this town of 1,100 people. Imagine 300 out of 1,100 coming into a new relationship with Jesus Christ. Edward said this, he said, God seemed to have gone out of his usual way in the quickness of his work and the swift progress his spirit made in his operation on the hearts of many. There was scarcely a single person in the town, either old or young, that was left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. You can see his other comments there. He said, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love, nor so full of joy. It was a time of joy in families on the account of salvations being brought unto them. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service, and everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Our public praises were then greatly enlivened. God was then served in the beauty of holiness. There was this movement, there was this sweet fragrance of Christ that permeated not only their church gatherings, but even their public meetings. It even affected their city government and the way that they treated one another and worked together. And that revival began to spread. It was those pockets and that movement across New England that set the stage then when George Whitfield and Gilbert Tennant began to preach in the cities and towns of both New England and the southern colonies. In those years from 1740 to 1743, George Whit Whitfield began to travel first through New England. And it was said that in that time he would preach to crowds of up to 8,000 people nearly every day for a month as people came out to hear him and they would travel great distances. Historians tell us that somewhere between 25,000 to 50,000 people were added to the churches in New England alone. That's around 7 to 14% of the population. New churches were started in record numbers. Colleges were begun like Dartmouth and Princeton to train missionaries and ministers to carry the gospel to the lost world. And the revival also laid the foundation for cooperative relationships between denominations. The revival had faded in New England by 1745, but not before it had permanently altered America. The number of conversions in the North and the South were estimated to be almost a quarter million. New churches began as America moved west. There was a greater piety, greater holiness of life. There was concern for higher education. And the impact on the founding of our nation is hard to estimate, but it was profound. 
because many of the religious, I mean, many of the political leaders in our country experienced this religious revival that took place before the founding of our nation. God moved in answer to the prayers of his people, and it was a remarkable time in history. Well, what else happens when we seek the Lord? Well, we experience his victory in our life. I'd like to read for us in chapter 14, verses 9 through the end of the chapter. At that time, Zerah the Cushite marched out against them with a vast army, 300 chariots, and he came as far as Marisha. Asa went out to meet him, and they took up battle positions in the valley of Zephatha near Marisha. And then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. And the Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. The Cushites fled, and Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar. Such a great number of Cushites fell that they could not recover. They were crushed before the Lord and his forces. And the men of Judah carried off a large amount of plunder. They destroyed all the villages around Gerar, for the terror of the Lord had fallen upon them. And they plundered all these villages, since there was much booty there. They also attacked the camps of the herdsmen and carried off droves of sheep and goats and camels. And then they returned to Jerusalem. So, 15 years into his reign, Asa experienced his biggest challenge when an enemy arose to attack Judah. His name was Zerah the Cushite, and he was likely a general leading the Egyptian forces against Israel. At that time in history, the Egyptians would hire the Cushites, the other name that they are known by are the Nubians, these tall and fierce warriors. They were hired by Egypt as mercenaries. And so here is Zerah leading this army that's coming to pillage Israel just like Pharaoh Shishak had done 30 years earlier. And what that reminds us is that being a believer doesn't mean that we're going to be exempt from difficulties or battles in our life. On the contrary, sometimes it's because of our faith that we are singled out for an attack or testing in our life. And this army that came against them was an overwhelming army. Uh, the text in the NIV here said that it was a vast army. Uh, literally, in Hebrew, it's a thousand thousands. A thousand thousands came up against him. It would be like a million men, and really it's probably just a way of saying that it was an army too large to even count. I mean, they just, they just swarmed over this area as they were coming up against Judah. And what did they also have along with uh, this army coming against them? It said that they had 300 chariots. In those days, that would be the equivalent of a modern tank. I mean, that was, you know, bringing out not only the infantry, but the artillery or the, the tank divisions as well. And Asa did the right thing. Asa went to the Lord in prayer, and he sought the Lord according to this promise that was given in 2 Chronicles 7.14, where he humbled himself, and he prayed, and he sought the Lord. 
And his prayer is what we read in verse 11 when he said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O our God. The numbers don't mean anything to the Lord. You know, however many are there in the enemy camps, that doesn't mean anything to the Lord. With the Lord on your side, he can supply the victory if we will seek him. And that's what they did. And God answered his prayer by routing the Cushites, and the terror of the Lord fell on his enemies. And in this reversal of what was intended, Israel now comes and they uh, pillage the enemy and they take all of this booty back and God blesses them as a people. They sought the Lord and he answered their prayers by routing their enemies. God still does that today when we seek him. In May of this year, um, Ted's, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, our seminary in Deerfield, Illinois, was celebrating its 50th anniversary. Now, the Evangelical Free Church has had a seminary or Bible training colleges from its very beginning, but it was in the 1960s that the seminary moved to its location on that Deerfield campus. And God used a man, Ken Concer, to give leadership at that time, and his leadership was extraordinary. Uh, on a shoestring budget with, you know, very little to operate on, uh, they bought uh, grounds that are there in Deerfield. It was about 120 acres. It had one building on it, a mansion that was there from the people that had owned it and sold it. It had a couple outbuildings, but nothing really to build a seminary and to bring students into other than that mansion. And Ken Concer began to recruit faculty to come and join them. And he recruited them mainly by the vision that he cast to create a school that would be known for its good academic scholarship, biblical scholarship, but also for its warm evangelical piety, joining together the mind and the heart and living that out in life. And uh, Dr. Kaiser tells the story of how his concert began to recruit people. He was recruiting Dr. Kaiser, wanting him to come at that time too. And, you know, they're talking on the phone, and Kaiser's like, so, so who's coming? You got Wilbur Smith to come? You know, and Wilbur Smith was the leading Bible teacher at that time in America. And you got Richard Longnecker coming, and, and Gleason Archer, and, you know, and he's like, listen to this and going, how are you doing this? You know, this is like a, a who's who of people that he began to recruit. And, you know, the student body at that time was small. It was like 37 students was all that were there at that time. And they knew that they needed and wanted to grow quickly. And in those early years, you know, the student body grew very quickly to 300 and then in time to 1,000 and, and more as it continued to grow. And they had to continue to build and build to keep up with the pace of what was going on. And it always seemed like they were on a shoestring, but God blessed in such a marvelous way. Well, it comes to the 1980s, and that was the time when I was there at the seminary. Uh, the, the college is on one side of this drive, and the seminary's on the other side, and they together form what we now call Trinity International University. Well, the college had some financial troubles in those years, and it came to a crisis point where they needed $2 million to pay for this loan they had or the bank was going to foreclose on the college side. And at that time, Ken Meyer was the president. And God had provided, in that time as they were beginning to raise the funds, $1,850,000. 
But they still needed 150000 and they had come down to the last weekend. The bank had given them until Tuesday to get that money in or they were going to foreclose. And Ken Meyer that weekend was scheduled to speak at a small church down in Arkansas. It was a new evangelical free church, and this had been scheduled months before, and he knew the pastor. It was a friend of his. And so he's thinking, okay, Lord, you know, we've done everything we could do. We've exhausted all the resources that we knew of and trusting him to supply. And that weekend he went down and he spoke at this church and preached that Sunday morning. And after the message was given at the end of the service, the pastor said to him, Ken, I just sense that there's a burden on your heart today. And would you feel free to share that with us today, what's on your heart? And Ken shared about the situation with the college, and, and he said, we still need $150,000 by Tuesday to pay this loan off. And after that service, uh, you know, Ken's standing near the front, and this man comes walking down the aisle, a big guy comes up to him, you know, and hands him an envelope and just says, Ken, I want to be a part of what God's doing at Trinity. And Ken said thank you to him, and he took the envelope and put it inside his uh, lapel, his jacket there. And then he's walking down, and then another guy came up to meet him, and he said, you know, I have a grandson at Trinity, and I really like what you're doing there, and I want to help with this need. And he gave him an envelope, and he told them that he just wanted to provide this for the school, and Ken thanked him. And he said, you know, you get an envelope with a check in it, and you can't open it right there, you know. So it wasn't until kind of most of the people had left that he went into the washroom and he took out these two envelopes and opened them up. And what he found were two checks for $50,000 each. And then he was leaving and he was walking out to the car and uh, he had a rental car and he was going to go to the airport and fly back to Chicago that night. And when he got to the car, another man came up to him there. And this man came and he said, you know, I'm a Methodist in background, but I really like what you shared this morning. And I'd like to be part of that solution too. But he said, I, I can't write you a check today. I could wire you the money on Monday and transfer it so you'd have it in time. And Ken said, well, that would be great. He said, how much were you thinking? And the man said, $50,000. A small church, three men stepped up, $50,000 each, exactly what they needed. Ken Meyer said, you know, I didn't need an airplane to fly home that day. I, I could have just flown home. I was so excited in terms of what God did and how he provided. There were so many stories shared at that 50th anniversary celebration of ways in which God worked through people, through his provision, through the students that are going out from Trinity, that it was really a great celebration. And really, really an honor to be um, part of that school and for us as a denomination to be able, uh, from its very beginning, our denomination has said that Trinity is a love gift to the wider evangelical world. And there have been well over 60 different denominations where students have come to Trinity to get solid biblical teaching on the inerrancy of Scripture and how to preach, how to teach, and share that powerfully. And then the missions focus and the evangelism focus and all the other things that have come out from that have really made Trinity one of the leading seminaries in the world. And that's really exciting. God works when we pray. 
And when we seek him, I mean, and he puts us sometimes in those situations where we have no place else to turn, and he answers, and he does it that way so that he gets the glory. And everybody knows it was God. It wasn't us. It wasn't our smarts or our intelligence or our gifts that did that. It was God, and to him be the glory. And then thirdly, what happens when we seek the Lord? Well, we experience his presence, and we see that in chapter 15. Let me read just part of it for us. In chapter 15, verse 1, it said, The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Odin. And he went out to meet Asa, and he said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And for a long time Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach and without the law. But in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, and he was found by them. What Azariah the prophet said to Asa there was indeed prophetic. The Lord is with you when you're with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. If you forsake him, he will forsake you. And Asa sadly experienced both sides in his life. The text tells us that for a long time in Israel, there was no worship of the true God, that there had been such a falling away and the priests were not teaching his word and the people drifted away. They were without a priest. They were without the law. Now that's significant. I'm going to call attention to it in this way. What again it is saying in the Old Testament is that the function of a priest was to teach the Word of God. That was the primary duty. And I look at that in the New Testament. The primary duty that we as ministers have is to teach the Scripture, to equip you to do the work of ministry. It's to help you know God and to understand His Word and then to live that out. And when we do that, we are all ministers. And we all minister in our places of work. We serve in the kingdom wherever God has put us. We serve in our neighborhoods. We have that role in our families where we minister to our children and to one another. But the primary duty then of a priest or a pastor today, we would say, is to teach the Word of God and then to lead God's people in worship. The people sought the Lord, and he was found by them. If you skip down to verse 12, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and soul. They said, we're going to put this in writing. We're going to make a covenant. And there was such a revival that took place that people from the northern ten tribes started to come back to Judah because they heard and they saw that God was with them. And what happens after this covenant is that... Um, for 20 years, for another 20 years, God gave them peace. And we see down in verse 17 this statement about Asa, that although he did not remove the high places from Israel in the north, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life, at least up to that point. I wish the story ended in chapter 15, where it ends on this high note where the people committed themselves to the Lord. They were obedient, and for 20 years they experienced God's blessing. But then comes chapter 16. In chapter 16, verse 1, it says, In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, the king of Israel, went up against Judah. 
He fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa, king of Judah. And then Asa took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and out of his own palace, and he sent them to Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, or Syria, north of Israel, who was ruling in Damascus. And he said, let there be a treaty between me and you, and he said, as there was between my father and your father. See, I'm sending you silver and gold. Now break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Instead of seeking the Lord, Asa now turned in this alliance to Syria. Now this threat of Basha was a far less serious threat than what had happened with Zerah who had come up against him. And here we have this situation where after 35 years of walking with God and experiencing his blessing, Asa forgot God. It was a terrible decision that would have lasting consequences for Judah. What does God do? Well, God sends to him the prophet Hanani. And we read in verse 7, At that time Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and he said to him, Because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on you will be at war. And Asa, rather than listening, it says in verse 10, Asa was angry with the seer because of this, and he was so enraged that he put him in prison. And at the same time, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. Rather than responding to the word of God, he got angry. His anger is probably an indication that Hanani was hitting the mark. I mean, that this was really cutting him to the quick. But instead of repenting and turning from his sin, he got stubborn. He hardened his heart. And then again, in, in uh, the 39th year in this chapter, a little farther down, it says in verse 12 that Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. And though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. The physicians there were not like doctors today. They were more like magicians and sorcerers with their incantations. And he turned to them rather than turning to the Lord and seeking help. And in the 41st year of his reign, he died. It is so sad, but it is also sadly true that if we don't tend the fires of our relationship with God, if we don't keep walking with him, we can forget God. And we, for, we forget the lessons that we have learned or the blessings that he had given. That's why over and over again, we need to come back to 2 Chronicles 7.14. That if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's why we need to be revived once again. What this passage tells us in chapter 16.9 is that the eyes of the Lord still look for those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So where is your heart today? Where is your heart? 
Do you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Will you turn from your sin? Is there anything that keeps tripping you up that you need to give to Him and seek His face and pray? Would you like to see God sweep our church and our nation with revival once again? Then it's time to seek the Lord with all our heart. Let's pray. Father, you alone know the condition of our heart and how good and how sweet and pleasant it is when we walk with you in faith and obedience. And God, where there are sins in our life that we struggle with, God, we just repent of that. We confess that to you and ask for your forgiveness. And we pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would renew us, strengthen us, empower us, that we could walk in victory. And God, would you bless your church, not just our church, but your church all across this country with the sweet aroma of your presence and bring revival that will touch the church and shape the nation once again. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.